The ever given just keeps on giving. A big headache that is. And watch out now. If you want to stay in business, be careful of the nuclear effect. This is Chris Joslin, and welcome to another edition of Jaws Bites. back. This is Chris Joslin again. Welcome to another edition of Jaws Bites, brought to you specifically by iLevelLogistics.com. Go to that site directly, www.ilevellogistics.com. See what is an aggregated news informational website, really designed for transportation professionals in general, but with a target focus on the small mid-cap business size. And a lot of the pitfalls, a lot of the things that can raise the level of your understanding about the industry, different segments of the industry, what you might want to go into, and how to develop your business into a profitable, competent, directionalized, and growing company. It's iLevelLogistics.com. And you can check us out on any number of uh, platforms for podcasts. Uh, Spotify will be on the uh, Apple um, platform soon, I'm sure. And, of course, you can see us on YouTube. Subscribe to our YouTube channel. Subscribe to our website. Because our goal really is to kind of start to talk about and mainstream the ideals, the aspects around supply chain transportation industry. Because, frankly, between all of us here on this uh, uh, together, uh, any given time listening to me or listening to others in the transportation field, our industry is the backbone of a lot of what goes on in the United States. People don't understand that. People don't see that for what it is, but it, but it is what it is. It's, that is. That is the truth of the matter. And my job is to try to convey that in a way that hopefully is simple. I don't try to dive too deeply into granular numbers and statistics, though I like that stuff a lot, and it helps when uh, trying to create a, a, uh, um, a backdrop to the industry in the in the right way and see where it's going but uh, frankly guys let, let's just dive right into it today because something happened last week we've got, we've got a new article out on the on uh, one of the social media platforms as well as on ilevelogistics.com and it's industry indicators for the week of march 21st through 27th and you know one of the primary things that a lot of the industry is talking about is is what happens to an entire supply chain because that whole visual concept of a chain is these links that we put together and to to hook up uh, from cradle to grave from from you know uh, source to consumer all the different aspects of getting something created from its raw materials and moved through a pipeline if you will to the to the point where we can all buy some kind of finished good and part of the pipeline, of course, is the international shipping out there. There's millions and millions and millions of miles every year that are, are done by international shipping to move products and around, whether it's bulk products, whether it's you know uh, agricultural products, whether it's finished goods, whether it's materials for for you know governments, etc. There's you know chemicals, there's vehicle containers, there's general cargo, there's bulk carriers, there's all kinds of things get container ships. But one of the main things that 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 I have um, some background in is container ship lines. And the ever 
given, which is the name of the, the steamship line that is now stuck sideways in the Suez Canal, has really kind of messed up the system. And you can think about that in any in terms of any pipeline. You can think of that in terms of biology if you want to. If you have a clogged artery, things have a hard time getting around it. And bad things are going to happen. And that's what happens in the supply chain. So the industry indicators uh, put out a little article again. And I think if it's not on the, the website today, it will be tomorrow. <clears throat> and the, the current analysis says that this maroon vessel, the Ever Given, in the Suez Canal is costing about $400 million an hour. $400 million an hour. That's an incredible snapshot of the cost of doing something wrong, probably very small something wrong. There would be investigation of, sure, of, of course as to how to make sure this stuff doesn't happen in the future. But these are super vessels. This vessel has 20,000 TEUs, that's 20-foot equivalent units, on board. Those are international steamship line boxes without chassis, stacked all the way from the interior of the ship all the way up through and usually protruding above ship, you know, 15, 20 high stacked on top of each other, locked together in unison to be shipped through the Suez Canal and to be distributed all over it. And what that's done is it's it's created a, a backlog, uh, something I've talked about before in podcasts, the accordion effect that occurs, right? When you have a, a, a highway that's zooming along and you narrow that highway down, or if you have an accident up in front of you, then what happens is an accordion effect. Everything that slows down in front has a a uh, a consequence behind it, and it takes a while for th for that to start moving again. Then the accordion can stretch out again. Problem is, if it doesn't start moving again, then you're stuck. You've got a clog in your artery, and you're going to have some bad things happen. And that's what that's where we're at right now. But I bring that up not because it's in, in some people are looking at it as, as almost kind of humorous when you look at the snapshots of this thing and what's happening. But the supply chain worldwide and even in the United States is very complex. It's got a lot of things that require fluidity. And to continue to have fluidity, you've got to have the infrastructure designed to take care of not just when everything goes right, but to take care of stuff when stuff goes wrong. And when you look at a Suez Canal, when you look at what they did with the Panama Canal a few years ago to enable these super, super ships to go through, they had to go through a huge amount of um, incredible engineering to get those locks to accommodate these ships with these huge amount of TE and FEUs, 40-foot equivalents, 20-foot equivalents. Uh, all those things are terrific on paper. In, in practicality, they're different, <clears throat> and they're... There are uh, groups of people, there are uh, think tanks that do nothing but come up with contingencies on what can happen if something goes wrong and what are the steps to take to get you out of doing something like that wrong. And we can look at those white papers, we can go on and find those, whether it be in something like what we're talking about here with the canal or something biologic or something like even the COVID vaccine and all the different pandemic kind of research that's done prior to any pandemics. There's all kinds of contingency plans that can go into place. And hopefully you never get to use have to use any of those. And the reason those contingency plans are in place is not to start something before it happens, but to have a blueprint 
for how to come back from something if it happens. Because building something before the cataclysmic event of the canal being blocked or a pandemic happening or any of that is too costly in general. You know, I'll, I'll just tell you a quick story. I remember when I first moved to uh, Escondido, California, there was a side road that everybody would take to the, the, the neighborhood that I lived in, and it would cross over a fairly busy, uh, you know, kind of uh, frontage road. And it had just a four-way stop, or excuse me, it had a two-way stop. So the frontage road had right-of-way and was going all the time, and then it had... You know, you'd have to wait at that side, that side road to get across that. And I remember the very first time I went on that road thinking, man, this is a recipe for disaster here. Somebody's going to get killed. But that's, that was the standard. That's what they had up. And I, I am sure that somewhere in the city of Escondido archives at, at, you know, the, at the uh, town hall there, or at, the, at the, uh, um, the governmental seat there in Escondido, there's probably a white paper somewhere that said, this is what we need to do at all these different places for new signage or new or, uh, stoplights and things like that. But nobody did anything about it because it cost money and it wasn't needed at that point. Nothing had happened. So about two years into living there, there was an accident, a bad one, and someone was killed. About three weeks later, there was a stoplight up. That's what typically happens with these kind of scenarios. We will see what this eventuates because there are huge amounts of money involved in, in long-term engineering projects. And Now, the Suez Canal probably has an advantage over places of infrastructure in the United States where the cost of infrastructure building in the United States is astronomically higher than most other countries. That's primarily because we are a country that, that wants its... Um, advances to take into consideration you know uh, environmental impacts uh, carbon impacts uh, it wants to take into consideration a lot of the 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 requirements we have for for uh, bidding processes and in how we we go through that that whole uh, scenario and it also requires states to, to input, county, city, states to input, as well as federal to input their dollars in time into creating the infrastructure. That's one of the reasons this big infrastructure bill that's being looked at in, in Congress right now is going to be very interesting. Is in infrastructure, of course, is we could have an entire conversation around the definition of infrastructure today compared to what maybe it, it should be defined as. Um, you know, when, when I think of infrastructure in terms of transportation department, I think of roads and rails and, and you know, potholes and, you know, coming up with solutions to weather, incremental weather situations or bottlenecks in, in where highways merge with freeways, things like that. But there's more to it than that. There's information superhighways now. There's technological aspects to things in terms of uh, supporting uh independent, uh, you know, population centers in connection with each other, not just physically, but in terms of the Internet. And, and then there's, again, all the impacts involved around that um, in terms of the green initiatives and things like that that, are, that occur. But, you know, ultimately, you got to follow the money when you look at all of this kind of stuff. And you've got to assume that there's going to be a certain amount of nonsense that goes involved 
because we're as much as we would like to think we're pragmatic and we will we will have a direct effect and consequence on and creating a new um, bill to pass that funds something that it would have a direct amount of dollars going directly to whatever that project is. It's very rarely like that. It usually is tied into some other, for lack of a better way to put it, some other pork spending that that either a constituency has been asking for forever for someone they helped get elected, or it's it's uh, you know a, a local group that has decided that you know their their gerrymandered um, area of a geographic area is got to have one thing compared to its neighbors. It gets very complicated, and, and that's not what this is about. But, but to get back on the, on track, if you will, because I'm creating my own clogged-up system by talking off in different directions, the problem is keeping fluidity in any given network, any given transportation supply chain network. That is the key to everything. It creates unbelievable efficiencies when done correctly, and it creates untenable deficiencies when it doesn't. And, you know, part of the indicators talked a lot about uh, driver capacity. And I, I did something a while back about trying to shift your paradigm to thinking about more than just pay to keep drivers retained and build the, the base of drivers to accommodate the growth in our business. There's part of that is how you treat that is a business and how you treat those people as individuals. Driver centrism is the way I termed it. And but in terms of how that relates to what I'm talking about, think about the efficiency of having in twenty twenty having more people off the road than on. There are a ton of people sitting at home, whether it's out of fear of the pandemic or whether it's because they were unemployed or any number of things, or whether they're at home more by a few percentage points simply because they're getting their goods shipped to them instead of going to, you know, get them at a, a mall or something. The consequence of having less people on the roads is that you can speed up incrementally the uh, distribution chain. Your truck drivers can drive faster. Your deliveries can occur more frequently. You, you don't have as much worry about downtime between uh, dropping something off and picking it up because you know the traffic's not going to hinder you as much. But when the traffic comes out again, as it's starting to do now that we've come back out of, uh, as we're coming back out of this, this time period, it slows down that, that, that uh, commercial traffic. The consequence of that is, again, multi-layered, but the, the main consequence is that it takes out of the entire business of transportation some of its its capacity for drivers. That doesn't mean there's less drivers. That means there's less hours in the day to do so. And the regulations with hours of service and, and some of the things that the new administration are trying to curtail in terms of um, the variance in the H HOS um, uh, profile that FMCSA has agreed to. And, and, and there's been all kinds of gyrations because of the change of, of administrations, and I'm not going to get into the rights or wrongs of that. That's not the point. The point is, is all these things affect one another. You can't look at any one of these things in a box. So that's that's one of the two things I wanted to chat about today. You can make your own decision 
as to how that affects you in the context of your business or your livelihood in transportation or as a consumer to the services that, that transportation providers give. But ultimately, it is affecting you. And when people run through all the big data and they look to find out how to manage their costs and analyze how they've done with all this stuff, the dollars and cents it creates to accommodate for inefficiencies or higher driver pay or less hours on the road or Suez Canal backups of 50 different steamship lines with hundreds of thousands of TEUs that can't get through that that plugged up system. The consequence of all that is dollars. I said at the beginning of this that that Suez Canal is costing $400 million an hour. Well, that's got to go somewhere. It's not absorbed into thin air. It's not absorbed by the government that runs that canal because they didn't dredge it deep enough for them to turn an entire huge steamship line around like that. That's not how it's handled. What, What it ends up is, is it ends up being looked at as a component of cost around the end user product that is created and sold to you and me. That's just economics. That's that's the way it has to be. So costs have to be contained and they can be tamed by spreading the 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 pool of risk to that cost across a greater number of things. That's why it goes down to the lowest common denominator. That's why those costs get broken down into cents against what you and I buy. But the second part of what I wanted to talk about was really the insurance side of things as well. In the, the That side of things is really important to look at because, again, it's about mitigating costs. And the fact that there are, have been a thousand-fold increase in what is being termed now nuclear decisions in terms of of uh, um, court decisions against uh, you know trucking firms of different kinds for a number of different reasons that that is that has created a what is going to be a a different kind of clog in the system because from in the eight year span from 2010 to 2018 the average verdict of a lawsuit above a million dollars, so we're talking about the bigger ones. We're not talking about the, the smaller lawsuits that occur, but that something that's involving a truck crash rose, like I said, over a thousand percent from about two point three million to twenty two point three million dollars per verdict. That is it, it it's mind boggling. And a lot of those are punitive things come about from decisions being made by jury election and in looking at the large companies whose crashes have occurred and the, the the terrible tragic circumstances that go around a lot of these things. But as as these numbers increase, the insurance industry has to look at that and say, how do we make up for that? So they, they do do that in two different ways. Premiums go way up, of course, and then risk has to be spread. So what ends up happening is there ends up being a a large dichotomy between 
smaller companies and larger companies and how they can manage their costs around insurance. Yeah, there's, there's just no two ways about it because a large company has broad exposure. You know, one of the things that's really important, I think, to discuss and to, to try to get out there and, and have a greater amount of recognition about is really the effect of the insurance market on the, the small truck business today. You know, large truckload carriers typically have enough density, uh, enough number of pieces of equipment or trailers in combination with tractors to provide a pool within its own business element to give that, that insurance company a way to, on a per unit basis, give them a fairly reasonable rate. Now, that's not the case as individual owner-operators, though there are collectives like OIDA that will help you as an independent oper independent owner um, insure your one or two trucks that you have in, in the appropriate manner to get some, at least some of the freight that you're looking to get. But if you want proper coverages, if you want excess coverages, if you want to really be able to go out there and spread your wings as a, a mid-cap or a small carrier in general with a dozen or up to around 20 uh, tractors, then you've got to really, really pay attention to the insurance uh, dollars because it can be a greater expense to you. That in combination with Workman's Comp, which is a whole other podcast entirely, mm -hmm. because there's a spread of different insurances and you have to be able to go out into the market and buy the general liabilities, the, the um, owned auto or the, the uh, protection against trailer interchange, all these different things are all elements to the insurance products that you buy. So oftentimes going through a broker is the appropriate way to do it. I'm not going to denigrate that at all. I think that's a wonderful thing. I've done it for years and, and worked with some very good ones. But to go out and try to shop that is not the easiest thing in the world to do. And there, there's just too many elements and, there's, and these insurance companies in general, they're for-profit institutions. They're not there to cover you at some low rate so that you can provide them with a thousand claims over the course of the next few years. So you've got to prove yourself over the course of time, have appropriately low uh, loss runs in the companies you've worked with to give you a better rate for someone else. So these large companies have a distinct advantage. One of the, my biggest complaints in the world and maybe I'll go into this in further de detail, but one of my biggest complaints in the world is that there's a... N nothing's fair, don't get me wrong, but but the field is not even, not even close to regulated between large and small companies. And I, I've worked for a very large company, and I've worked for myself, a very small company. And both both companies are required to do the same basic things. They're required to have certain levels of insurance. They're required to have certain certifications. They're required to go through the HR gyrations and, and workman's comp gyrations and just you name it. There's a ton of different things to do. And each of them deserve a full half an hour, hour podcast dedicated to developing a better understanding of each of those elements. But for today, as I wander off the trail here, I wanted to talk a little bit about insurance because it, it's going to get worse. 
if, for those of us that are out there in the, in the world looking to try to maintain and develop business. And what it really comes down to is if you're a small business and you have a large portion of your cost dedicated to set insurance and payroll and things like that, then you have to have a certain margin um, spread to be able to facilitate that. And all these things are really important to running a small business. So if you if you are dedicating yourself to getting to a break-even and getting into the black in terms of your books, then you need to look at the large factors involved with your business, the costs involved, and tell yourself, what do I need to do to rein in those costs and to get them under the wire so that I can still be competitive in the industry, but not not act like I'm a large company because if you want to compete with the large companies you better have some serious financial backing to do it and bring the asset levels up to a place where you can start to compete um, but insurance in insurance right now there's there's been a push for many years to move the insurance there was about three or four years ago there was a push to get it from 750,000 on auto liability up to a million they did that and then there's been this discussion over the course of the last couple of years to get that up to two million. They did not do that. It was put on hold during the Trump administration. The Biden administration is pushing for that very, very hard. And there are even articles you can read out there today that indicate that they may push for a higher level than that. This will be be a very difficult thing for people to swallow. So from an insurance company's point of view, it's really all about spreading risk. It's spreading it against a, a whole bunch of variable premiums that are paid by all sizes in all uh, parts of the transportation industry. It's not unlike what you may be more familiar with in terms of mortgages. The, the you know there was a there was a law put into place back in the late '90s, I believe, it was by the Clinton administration originally that was trying to promote home buying and really had a regulation go in place with a lot of the major banks that said you must give a certain amount of your mortgage loans to less qualified potential buyers of homes. And you know there's there's good reasoning behind that, you know, home ownership at the time I think it ranks number 2 right now. At the time it was the number one dream of an American to have their own home, a family to have their own home. I think now it's to own their own business, I believe. I have to look up those statistics again. But at the time, it was that. So the push for having home ownership was very important thing for families in general to have. And allowing people that had a less robust credit background to enable them to purchase a home was vitally important at the time. But as with most things, there are consequences to those uh, efforts put into place. And one of the consequences of that is a secondary market was created where a bank could take a bundle of mortgages that were very robust and backed up by uh, people and entities with excellent, excellent credit ratings and history. And they would bundle them with less uh, creditworthy uh, mortgage borrowers, and then resell that package that had a, a decent average to a secondary market. And in that way, they were able to broaden their ability to, to offer those those 
credit arrangements to people that in the past may not have qualified for those. Well, insurance is really no different than that. And it's not necessarily those that deserve or have the same credit rating. A small business can have a great credit rating, but not enough history or a not enough equipment or tractors or trailers or personnel or overall revenue or any number of things that would give it a large enough desirable spread for an insurance company to look at that. that here, here's what ends up happening. The insurance company looks at a small company and says, okay, you have 10 trucks. You have one of those trucks get in a major, major uh, accident that has one of these nuclear uh, decisions that may come up against it. And not only are you out of business, but we're going to have to pay millions and millions of dollars. But you only have 10 trucks. So our premium's small in comparison. Now, if you have 1,000 trucks and you have one incident, then we're going to take that risk because we're having all these premiums on a per-truck basis over here to compensate us for the one accident that could happen. And statistically, those accidents can happen just as easily to a small company as they can to a large company. So that's that's where the insurance, the, you know, I would love, I've never met an uh, an actual actuary, but I would love to sit down and have a long conversation. That would be a great interview at some time, at some point, is to have a, a conversation with an actuary about how they can come up with statistical averages based on historical stuff, but also prescient understanding of forecasting in a way that, that is probably deeper than than most industries could possibly have, and that's the insurance industry. So having said all that, the, the point of this is that if if they're looking to move up above the, the $2 million range, the likelihood is like a lot of things. They, they'll ask for 2.5 and end up at 1.75 or so. Who knows what will end up happening? But that's the direction it's going because the insurance companies are in business to be in business. They're for-profit entities, as I said earlier, and that constructurally is their job. And if you've ever had conversations about large claims with an insurance company, which I have had, they're not fun. They, they, you could be paying them premiums for years and years and years, and when you really have something big that occurs to you, you better have your I's dotted and your T's crossed, or they're not going to pay you out anyway. They, they, their job is to try to keep as much money for their investors is humanly possible like all companies so it's a complex situation but you know ultimately the elements that we've talked about today fluidity in a system and the cost elements involved that can back up a system are vitally important to constructing a business that has some success I know this sounds like a lot of doom saying but it's part of understanding and mainstreaming this transportation business is to allow for the fact that a lot of things can come at you very strongly and that you have to be prepared for them. That doesn't mean you can cover every base. Nobody can. It's all about risk-reward. There are ways to mitigate some of your insurance costs. And as an example, I know clients that will ship with with me on the railroad and it's a you know uh, a shipper loading count kind of scenario it's up to them to block and brace to 
AAR, uh, Association of American Railroads, standards with whatever product types and pallets and every securements they're using to do so. It's up to them to do that. And they won't spend as much money on securements in that type of protocol or even having a review of that with the railroad sometimes as they often should simply because of dollars and cents. It's what I talked about earlier as far as waiting till something bad happens to put a contingency plan into place. It's the same thing. You know, they, they, they are making a calculated bet based on their own history or based on the industry's history or based on what they see from the railroads or what they see from me or someone else analyzing this. And they say, well, we can save X amount of dollars a year on these thousands of shipments and we'll have one or two things that happen to the shipments that may affect us in this way and cost us X amount of dollars. But that will be less money than we would have spent on these securements. Thus, they, they take that risk. And, and all of us in business and in life have to be prepared to take the risks, right? These days you take a risk wearing a mask or not wearing a mask or going into a restaurant or not going into a restaurant or being around your your folks or not being around. <laughs> There's all kinds of risk rewards uh, in every aspect of our lives today. And that's what our job is, is to decide what those risks are, to keep our business and personal lives moving forward in as efficient and fluid manner as humanly possible. And what I'm hoping is that this kind of stuff, I know as scattered as it can get sometimes, can elicit some thinking from you, can elicit some ideas, can enable you to sit down with a colleague, a friend, a family member, and think about these things, not just in terms of transportation and how it affects you in your daily life, but in terms of how you construct your your own balance, your own network, your own fluidity, and uh, in, in your own set of determined costs against what you do on a day-to-day basis. I, I look forward to us communicating uh, via ilevellogistics.com, www.ilevellogistics.com. You can go to LinkedIn or Facebook or Twitter or or Instagram and and start in with a conversation, comment on these things. I, I didn't have time to get to it today, but I, I have been getting a number of very interesting comments on some of the some of the stuff I've published on LinkedIn and um, and uh, Twitter, etc. And those can be discussed at a further time. I invite all of them. It doesn't matter whether you agree with me or not, whether you have uh, five more cents to put in, or or if you have you know something you'd like to bring up statistically to to refute something i say all those things are terrific be a part of the conversation that's what this is all about so i look forward to talking to you in the near future whether it's on a youtube channel whether it's in person or whether it's on one of our uh, our podcasts take care and we'll see you very very soon